All right. Hello and welcome to Just Animals Podcast. I'm Elle and with me as always is my dad, aka Guy. Hello, Podworld. How are you? It's been a while. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Greg Florent from Colorado of all places and his uh, friend who we'll introduce here in just a second. But I'm going to let Dr. Greg uh, take it away, introduce himself and tell us about what he does and his little friend to the right of him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I assume, yeah, we're recording and everything. So yeah, um, so I'm. My name is Greg Florent. I've been a professor uh, for about forty-five years, actually. Wow. Um, I uh, got my uh, undergraduate degree at Cornell and my PhD at Stanford. And while at Stanford, I decided to study marmots uh, as a PhD topic. And uh, after uh, getting my PhD, I did a postdoc in New York City. And then uh, took a job at, at Swarthmore College um, for about 10 years. And then I worked at Temple University for five years. And then I came to Colorado State University uh, in 1994. And I've been teaching uh, and I taught all the way up until about 2021 uh, when I decided to retire. So uh, now I'm an emeritus professor from uh, Colorado State University from the Department of Biology. Wow. When, that's when you're quite in New York, history. that was the wrong type of rodent to be studying because uh, they have different rodents over there. They're pretty big, though. That, that's true. In fact, uh, while I was in New York, I actually had to study woodchucks, and they're nasty. They, you don't want to have to study woodchucks. Um, but I did study woodchucks while I was in New York uh, up at uh, Montefiore Hospital and Einstein Medical Center because we were looking at uh, the relationship between fat metabolism and insulin regulation. And these guys have a very interesting, as you might imagine, because they, they get fat for the winter. Why don't they become diabetic uh, yeah. like all humans do, et cetera. Uh, and that's a story we can discuss a little later. But yeah, uh, but yeah I, I ended up in a medical school for, uh, for two years as a postdoc, uh, learning more about uh, the biochemistry of insulin regulation. No kidding. Wow. That's, so, yeah, yeah, your story is, is insane. It's like, I mean, what more can we add to your plate here? I know. Uh, how, so how, why marmots? How did you end up with the marmot or what made you interested in the marmot? Well, um, the, the, the simple answer is I had to produce a PhD. And okay, so, fair enough. <laughs> that's, that's the short answer. The, uh, the long answer is that I, uh, I entered the lab. I, I won a Ford Foundation Fellowship, which I should acknowledge oh, uh, right away. Um, and so uh, Ford was was really uh, good at sponsoring my PhD um, fellowship. And uh, <clears throat> as a Ford Fellow, then I had to uh, find a lab to work in. And the lab that I decided to work in was Dr. Uh, Craig Heller's lab at uh, Stanford. And um, Heller worked on ground squirrels. Uh, but I uh, decided that I wanted to work on marmots. And at the time, it was uh, unclear whether marmots could actually undergo hibernation because of their size. Uh, given that the animals usually between oh, 2.5 to 5 kilograms uh, in, uh, in weight, um, the question was, would they allow their body temperature to drop to very low levels, close to ambient and uh, be able to rewarm themselves. And so the, phys the actual physics of it was right. uh, an interesting problem. Well, um, Heller uh, reminded me that in all the years that he had been uh, a professor at Stanford, uh, he had only trapped uh, 
one marmot every four or five years. Uh, they were extremely difficult to trap, and uh, he uh, he hadn't trapped very many. And so when I said I was going to do my PhD on marmots and follow up on some of the work that he was doing with ground squirrels, um, he said, well, I, I hope your Ford Fellowship will allow you to go for about 16 or 18 years because that's you'll need that many years to get the number of marmots just to have a, a, a good sample size. Oh boy. And I, being the brash um, graduate student that I, I was at the time, not that I'm not brash now, but certainly then, um, I said, well, that was you and, and, and you are you and I'm I, and I, I think I can trap marmots. So I went out <clears throat> to trap marmots and uh, uh, bring them into the lab and, um, I uh, didn't catch any the first time I went out. Uh, and so uh, there wasn't a smirk on his face. He just kind of, you know, he just kind of, well, you know, I, you know. I, the I silent, told I told you so. The right. silent, yeah, exactly, I told you so. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I went out the second time uh, and I tried to trap marmots and I didn't catch any. And uh, so the third time I went out and this was up in the Sierras in California. You guys know where that is. Yeah, so. I was about to ask, where in California were you finding marmots? <laughs> right, exactly. So we were up in the Sierras and um, up at actually near Saddlebag Lake, uh, okay. above Yosemite. And uh, I uh, went out the third time and I'm sitting in a tent with uh, uh, an undergraduate who uh, was helping me to do my study. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, you know, uh, if I was a marmot and I'd been hibernating all winter long and I just woke up, um, I, I don't want uh, lettuce and carrots and, and, you know, veggie foods. I right. want fat. I want, I want fried chicken. I want, you know, uh, I, I want, want ice cream. I want, I want right. Something, something, something really substantial. Right. right. Something that's got a lot of fat in it. It's going to help, you know, help me uh, get my uh, body mass back up again. Right. And uh, and I went, you know, greasy, greasy stuff. So uh, we got up and uh, the undergraduate didn't know where I was going with this. But I said, uh, we're going to go to uh, the diner. There's a diner up at near Tioga Pass. And so I went up to the diner there. And, you know, here's this guy, um, you know, six foot two guy, an undergraduate walking in. And, you know, <clears throat> black guy uh, goes to the back of the diner. Uh, to where the cook is, and you know, in those diners, they have the the uh, gr- uh, greasy grill in the oh, back. Oh yeah, 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 the the grease pot that they just right. sweep and it all it, into. Yes, you you got it. And so I walk back. The people are all in the diner having breakfast and everything. And I said to to the cook there, I said, um, "Can I have that uh, that uh, is it one of those big uh, MJB coffee cans that they usually scrape <laughs> all the drippings into?" Right. Uh, and I said, "Can I can I have that can?" And, uh, <laughs> Of uh, be, uh, bacon and all kinds of drippings right. from stuff, and the guy looked at me and he said, "You know, oh yeah, sure, man, you you can have it." Right. And I said, "Thanks." And the undergraduate was like hiding his head. He was right. Like, like oh, I can't God. believe this is happening right now. I don't know I this man. Believe, I can't believe that you know this this guy is doing this. And so the 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 uh, cook slides the can to me, and I say, "You know, thanks very 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 much. Uh, I, I appreciate it." And I took the can, I turned to, to walk away, and and uh, the guy said, wait, 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 wait a minute. And I said, what? And he said, please, just don't eat it all in one sitting. 
<coughs> I had to laugh and I said, no, don't worry. I won't. It's not for me. No, I, that's right. <laughs> I, won't, I won't eat all of it. So we went out and with uh, some dandelions for because they were uh, yellow with the color. And I knew mm-hmm. that marmots like dandelions. I soaked the uh, dandelions with the bacon grease and all the fat stuff. Right. And uh, long story short, I caught uh, close to uh, 30 marmots that one day. Uh, I filled oh the Stanford van with marmots. <laughs> and I came back and Heller was like, I can't believe this. You know? right. and like, did you so, go to the zoo and get these? Where did you get yeah. these? <laughs> right, exactly. So I, uh, So that was the first part of my PhD puzzle that I had to solve, was just trapping the animal. So wow. I figured out a really good uh, bait to be used to trap marmots. And, you know, everybody loves bacon. Absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. Yes. So, yes. You know, can't go wrong uh, with bacon. Yeah. It would, it, it, the inside the trap, it really would smell and the animals would be fighting to get into the trap. They oh, were I'm just, sure. They, they wanted to be trapped because they wanted that bacon. They wanted to get their, their, their uh, fat mass back up again. So um, needless to say, I had enough marmots to start doing my PhD study, and I did did my study with Heller and and uh, got you know graduated and uh, and I got uh, pu- I published this uh, particular bait, and now marmot mar- as we call ourselves marmoteers, marmoteers. We, marmoteers all around the world use that bait for uh, for trapping marmots because it really works and it works well for ground squirrels and all kinds of rodents because particularly in the spring because they're looking to get right. uh, fat and essential fatty acids back into their body again. So right. wow. I have a, I have a more fundamental question for you, which is, I, it, to That's me, amazing, is very interesting. Uh, when you went home and told your family, I'm going to study marmots, did they think that you were just nut crazy? Well, <clears throat> you know, that, <laughs> that's a good, a good, a good question. Um, I come from a very interesting family. Um, okay. I, my, my three of my uncles are all scientists. And my oh, okay. father was a scientist uh, at Lockheed Missiles in Space. And, oh. um, and my, so my mother was a public health nurse. Okay. So they were very much into science. And okay. so when I came home from school, uh, at, at, even at Stanford, and I would say things like, I have to go back to the lab now to do research and do my marmot stuff. They were encouraging me to go back. They said, okay. when, I, when I said I had to do an experiment on Christmas morning, they said, that's okay. Just, you know, when, you, when you're done with your experiment, come on back and, and uh, we'll have breakfast ready for you. And I did. There were times when I had to be back in the lab on uh, New Year's Eve or New Year's Day or Christmas Day. And so my family was extremely supportive. Oh, that's awesome. Because, because they were uh, they were scientists. And had, right, yeah, so they get it. They understand, yeah, you know, yeah, you got to exactly. run experiments, you got to rerun it and then rerun it again and then write your report and then right. change your report. And... Right, exactly. <laughs> now, now, my brothers were another story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, they they were not scientists, they were not into oh. science. Oh, fair so enough. Every time I got a, for example, every time I got a NSF grant, they would ask me, you know, what are you going to do with all that money? And you know, yeah. and I'd say, wait a minute, a very 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 small amount of that money comes to me. All the rest right. goes to the university. You know, right. so they had no clue really how science was really working. Um, right. But uh, but they just knew that you know. Gregory was the mad scientist and uh, <laughs> doing all this stuff on, on animals and like that. 
That's awesome. That's so cool. And that's great you had parents that fostered that too and that understood like, you know, I mean, I've some of my bio lab classes when I back when I was an undergrad, we, I had to go in on the weekend and count fish heartbeats and stuff. So it definitely, definitely, or actually like little fish and like they're still in the eggs and count their little heartbeats. But yeah, that takes some time and having to be going on a Saturday and a Sunday into your bio lab. <laughs> right. right. So like, you know, you, you had to, you had to strike while the iron was hot, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and the experiments were working. Right. You had to, had to stay in there and make sure exactly. you got all the data. So Absolutely. So let's talk about something I'm sure you've looked at, and that is how long is the hibernation period? Okay, so let's let's back up a sec okay. a little bit and and uh, make some definitions. Yes, right. please explain my, hibernation. Right. <laughs> some of my some of my colleagues might disagree with me a little bit, but but in general, we all do agree about uh, about some of these definitions. So hibernation, in my view. Uh, is a period of time, so it's time period, mm-hmm. over which uh, animals exhibit behavioral and physiological adaptations to survive when food supplies are low or non-existent and ambient temperature is such that they would, incre- they would, they would expend too much energy to be able to survive. That okay? makes sense. So mm-hmm. in this case, uh, hibernation is considered a, a time period which really encompasses winter. So we're talking about from September or so, uh, September, October, all the way until usually uh, March or April. That's, that's the time period when animals hibernate, okay? Now, when we talk about, well, what is hibernation? Well, hibernation, the characteristics of hibernation, besides occurring during that time period of so September, October through till March or April, are that the animal will stop eating or greatly decrease their food intake. And more importantly, they will drop their body temperature to extremely low levels. And now we have to really be careful about how we're defining uh a torpor bout because torpor Yes, bout, that's my question. Because that's right, like what reptiles do, right? Right, because because well, because reptiles undergo dormancy. See, that's oh. where that's where there's a difference. Now, here's okay. here's why there's a difference. Reptiles, for example, go into their cave or their burrow, and they will drop their body temperature, and you will not see them again until March or April, and their body temperature remains the whole time at low temperature. Now, it has to be above freezing, otherwise they'd be dead. So right. they're, they're picking a, a, a cave or hibernacula where the body temp- where their temperature will of that hibernacula, the ambient temperature, will stay above freezing. But they will stay in that, in that cave the whole time, and their body temperature stays low that whole time. Okay? Whereas, let's just first take the marmot, and then we'll go to some other species. The marmot will... will go down underground and it will stop eating and it will allow its body temperature to drop near to freezing. So if it's, if the bite, if the ambient temperature is like minus five or so, uh, they probably, they try to pick a, a burrow where the temperature of the burrow will stay above zero. So they try to, they try to find a, a burrow, good burrow that's insulated well enough that they won't, 
uh, freeze to death. But they will let their body temperature drop down to near, near freezing, minus uh, one degree, two degrees, etc. But every two to three weeks, they arouse. They come back up to youth thermic body temperature, all the way back up to 37 degrees Celsius, okay, or 98.6 if you're thinking in, Celsius, in uh, Fahrenheit. So the animal, every week, two weeks or so, arouses and comes back up to euthermic body temperature. Does it come above ground? No, it stays in its burrow. He stays in his burrow, I don't know, reads the book, finishes a few chapters of the book he was reading or whatever, fixes up his burrow, but they don't eat. They don't store food in it. At least marmot doesn't store food. And then they, after about anywhere from 10 to 12 hours or so, they go back down. So you get this Going up, uh, going uh, coming down to low temperature, and then going back up to high temperature again every two weeks. So the animal is arousing and expending energy to get back up to euthermic temperatures every two to three weeks. And they do that all winter long for the hibernation season until spring, when all of a sudden they say, hey, it's spring. We want to reproduce, and they maintain a body, a high body temperature, like a norm, well, quote unquote, normal rodent for the rest of the summer until early fall. Okay, so, so whereas, professor, whereas I'm your sorry. snakes never yeah. do that. Okay? Right. So, what is the uh, differential uh, between when they're going up to the, you know every two weeks? I mean, you've got respiration, you've got heartbeat. And and then there's excrement. I mean, I suspect that the uh, they're not eating. Yeah, they're not eating. No, no excrement. They do not urinate. They don't produce any any excrement. Their heart rate drops from about 200 beats per minute to one to two beats per wow. minute. Oh, that's barely oh, alive. My God. Barely alive, and 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 their respiration uh, drops to extremely low levels as well. Okay, the respiration drops down to one or two uh, beat, uh, uh, breaths, uh, breaths and, and the heart rate, as I say, drops from about 150 all the way down to two or three uh, beats per minute. That's insane. Uh, that is a remarkable at, adaptation. Don't you think that's, yeah, that's crazy. miraculous? Absolutely remarkable. And that's one of the reasons why it sucked me in for my PhD to study of this. Course. Because I said, this is incredible. And, and the thing is, is that they do that. And they do that repeatedly, right? All all winter long. Okay, uh, they're going from 200 beats per minute down to two beats per minute. And if you show a physician uh, the EEG and the heart, oh, that's got to be scary. Rate, they think the animal's dead. Yeah. Okay. But, so but is not, the um, is the cycle perfect. time very consistent in terms of the up and the down? Is it? Yeah, purpose of cycling is that like the making sure all the parts still work you know like booting up a computer making sure it still works okay back down <laughs> well okay so to answer both try to answer both questions okay so yes the the, the periodic uh torpor bouts we call them uh where they go down and then stay down and then come back up again those appear to be very regular uh how they're timed we we don't have a a, a solid answer in fact, nobody knows what causes the arousal. We still don't know what actually causes the arousal. Okay. People have speculated, like you were just saying, Ellie, that 
um, they they need to arouse to get their physiology back in order again, or mm-hmm. to uh, get their uh, uh, brains working properly, or or to pee, uh, or to get rid of metabolic waste, or whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah. But, but they haven't eaten anything. Right. Okay? Um, but all of those uh, suggestions, all those hypotheses, have not answered the question. They they they've been tested and they don't answer the question that of why the animals arouse. So we still don't know. We, we, we call it the mystery of the arousal. We don't know why they arouse. Now, having said that, there are a lot of other rodents that show multi-day torpor bouts. That is, they go up and down every day, uh, oh depending God. upon food availability and depending upon their hormone levels, depending upon what, what's going on with them. So the, the marmot is one of the extreme ones. And people then will ask me, well, what about bears? Do they really hibernate? Yes, they do. In fact, uh, bears definitely drop their body temperature. Now, you can imagine a 300-pound, 400-pound bear, can it store enough fat to bring its body temperature up from, say, 5 degrees Celsius all the way back up to 37 degrees multiple times during the winter? Oh, yeah. The answer is no. Yeah, I just guess no. So we asked the question, what do bears do? Right. Well, bears allow their body temperature to drop about 6 to 8 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. So maybe coming down from 37 down to 28 or so. Mm-hmm. And that's enough of a metabolic savings, along with dropping its heart rate and its respiration down to very low levels. That's enough of a metabolic savings that the bear can survive on its fat for the whole winter. No problems. Mm-hmm. Remember, female get, bears give birth during winter. Wow. And oh, so that's right. they, their body temperature stays relatively high, but sure. they still are metabolically depressed. They still drop their metabolism. They drop their body temperature at only a, f- a, a few degrees, but that's enough of a metabolic savings that they can survive on that mass of fat that they have uh, during the during the winter. Whereas these guys can go all the way down to close to zero and right. they have enough fat on them that's that a miracle. They, can, they can do it several yeah, times. Multiple times. That's yeah. crazy. Like even, I mean, so, even doing it once is crazy, but then yeah. like repeating that every in every two weeks on right. such a consistent so, basis. So you ask the question, you ask the question also, so what what's the purpose of this? Why are they doing this? Well, the purpose is to survive a period when there's low temperature and no food. Mm. So you're 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 in an environment where your food supply has dried up and gone away and the temperatures are very cold. Well, what are the things that you can do? You can you can die, which a lot of <laughs> insects do. Yeah, there's that's always an option, yeah. yes. Yeah, you, know, you can, you can die. party. Right. <laughs> you can migrate, yeah, which a lot of animals do. Right. Okay. Birds, for example will yeah. migrate from cold areas to warm areas, okay? Uh, and th- uh, third, you can tough it out like badgers, skunks. Yeah, like wolverines. Uh, raccoons, wolverines. You can tough it out and you can still drop your body temperature a little bit uh, and get sort of lethargic, But um, and that allows you to make it through the winter, but you can scavenge and look for stuff under the snow and like that. And the fourth possibility is to hibernate. 
to find a safe shelter spot and drop your body temperature to very low levels. And you have no meta, really no significant metabolic uh, needs. And you periodically arouse, we don't know why, to uh, to uh, use temperatures as if to make sure you keep yourself going. And then you drop it again. And you do that through the whole period until spring comes. And then once spring comes, you've got food, you've got warmer temperatures, you're back back in business. That, so, that, le- that leads me to my next question. What is the cue that spring is here? Is it temperature? Is it amount of daylight? Is it just uh, uh, their body? Is it something that they get a phone call and say, wake up? Uh, right, right. Well, the, the, the cue is basically that hibernation is a circannual rhythm. That is, okay. it is a, uh, a yearly rhythm where <clears throat> this goes on. Uh, if you put the animal in a, a cueless environment, i.e. no light, uh, constant temperature, etc., they will still undergo these torpor bouts during the proper time of year, uh, i.e. during the winter time. Now, how do we know that? Because a guy named David E. Davis, a long time ago, he took woodchucks, your eastern kissing cousin of the marmot, uh, he took woodchucks and he shipped them to Australia. Now, by all rights, if it was photoperiodically timed or yeah. temperature timed, the animals should have adopted the Australian photoperiod right. and, and, and environment within right. one year. Within yeah. one right. year, they, they right. should have then uh, adopted it. Instead, it took four and a half to almost five years before the woodchucks shifted their hibernation to the Australian winter. That's and, that's a new, summer that's, cycle. Okay, that's very interesting. So we now know that uh, light and temperature yeah. they do affect the timing of the sure. circadian rhythm. Uh-huh. Okay, but they are not the ultimate cue that causes it. They, they can affect the rhythm and change the rhythm. And this is why global warming, temperature change, yeah. is really affecting these guys right now. Because they if, you, if they can't find a place that's cold, <laughs> they can't hibernate. Yes. And yet their physiology tells them, this is the time of year I'm supposed to not eat. Yeah. Well, if I don't eat and it's, and it's warm, my metabolism goes up higher. I lose my body fat faster, I'm out of luck. There's nothing to eat. I, I die sooner. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I, I, I've got two uh, answer, uh, questions that relate to this. We have spoken to a lot of people uh, in the animal world that uh, do stuff with the Department of Defense and Department of Energy, um, you know, trying to replicate no. natural behavior and engineer this. So has the Department of Defense talk to you about survival for humans in cold climates or anything like that? Yeah. Um, in, in fact, uh, DARPA uh, did did approach a bunch of us who study hibernation and asked, you know, what, what can we do to, you know, put a human into hibernation, so to speak? Okay. Austin Powers. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, the uh, interesting point was that they were – they were very interested in it for the for at least one of the following reasons, and and the the the, the biggest reason was apparently when a soldier 
or a, 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 a Marine or whatever, you know, soldier gets, gets shot, you have what's called the golden hour. Yes, right. Right, right which is the hour that you've got to do something to him yeah. to help him survive. If you can do something in that first hour, the human has a really good chance of surviving. Well, one of the things that they were really excited about is if we can lower a human's oh, body temperature. Yeah. To so, low so levels, circulation, sure. Exactly. That's, right. That, that decreases parking. the circulation, that saves the tissues, that right. saves everything. And it, it would probably save the human's life because yeah. they wouldn't bleed out as fast. Right. The Potentially the limb, too. Exactly. Yeah. So DARPA was really interested in, you know, is there something about the blood or whatever of hiring an animal that we can inject, you know, do an injection and then the animal, the, the human starts to cool down right. and, and everything. So that that got worked on for several years. And many, some of us, uh, when I say some of us, I mean others in the hibernation field, yeah. uh, since we all knew about this, um, others in the hibernation field got so, uh, money from the military, from DARPA and other places to, to study that. And so far, we've not produced the, the miracle drug that would right. uh, lower your body temperature. I think it's an ice uh, bath is what it is. <laughs> right, right, exactly. An ice bath yeah. is really what it is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now, having said that, my advisor, uh, Heller, he actually studied yogis in India, and they were able to uh, lower their body temperature naturally by themselves and uh we wanted he he tried to study that for a while but um that that didn't uh didn't pan out but um there are people that can lower their body temperature naturally and it allows them to not only survive but eat yeah. less and and have uh well those a, uh what do you call those divers that go down without a tank you know they, divers they slow right, them, they exactly. have to slow themselves down somehow Right, exactly. They also uh, uh, decrease their heart rate, decrease their respiration, and are able to survive. And so it it is it is possible that yeah. uh, in 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 the distant future we might be able to uh, have a, a situation where we can either give somebody a drug or whatever that helps them to lower their metabolism and lower their their uh, heart rate, respiration, yeah. etc., to be able to survive. And uh, and not eat and 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 be able to to survive a time of of stress. It's, I mean, that's what we're right. talking about is uh, sure. of severe stress, right? When the uh, in in the period of hibernation, when you said they're going through the cycle of you know waking back up or what did you call it, topper arousal that... arousal arousal is when they come back up again. Yeah, right. is the um, going from one beat per minute to their normal uh, heart rate. Do is that cycle time the same as the down cycle, or is it a different uh, cycle time up versus down? Interesting. Uh, when they start to go into hibernation, start to go down, their heart rate and their respiration drop very quickly, yeah. and uh, and drop very quickly, and their body temperature is basically governing their metabolism as they drop it. And they go further down. Now we have recent data, evidence to suggest that they can suppress their metabolism. So, if, in other words, if you keep your metabolism up high, you can't lower your body temperature. You're producing heat. Ah, uh, right, right. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. 
So what we have found is that marmots and, and bears in particular, the way that they're able to, to uh, uh, get their body temperature down so quickly is that they suppress their metabolism. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question and a good uh, research topic is to find out how do they suppress their metabolism. Right. We don't know what the mechanism is exactly that allows them to suppress their metabolism. And hence, once they do that, body temperature falls naturally. Okay, Body temperature will fall naturally. And so that's what you get. And that's what I actually showed in my thesis work, (coughs) excuse me, is that the set temperature for metabolism drops very quickly and and, and, um, in a not quite stepwise manner, but in a a nice slow uh, sort of... uh, um, exponential manner as it goes down so that the animals uh, generating of heat generation of heat doesn't happen because they mm-hmm. they're below the set the uh, they're above the set temperature so so long as they're the set temperature is below they can't they won't produce any heat okay right. it's, it's like the thermostat of a house if you yeah. keep turning down the thermostat of a house well it's not going to heat up because it's, uh, if it's cold outside and it's losing heat Right. And that's what happens with these guys. Now, the arousal is a different story. We, we find that when they're going back up during the arousal, the set temperature goes up very quickly. So uh-huh. in other words, it goes up above body temperature. So the animal all of a sudden perceives that I'm very cold and I need to hurry up and heat myself up again. Uh-huh. And the first mechanisms to heat themselves up are the brown fat. They have what's called brown fat, mm-hmm. which... Uh, Internally, in their axillary areas and interscapular areas, that warms their blood. It, it's a, it has an uncoupling protein in it, which uncouples oxidative phosphorylation from respiration. And um, so as they start uh, using the brown fat, instead of making ATP, it just makes heat. So this brown fat tissue just makes a lot of heat and warms up their blood until usually around 15 to 16 degrees Celsius. And then you see the animals start to actually physically shiver. And then they start shivering as well. And they and as they shiver, they, their muscles are producing heat along right. with the brown fat. And that brings their body temperature back up to these uh, normal levels. Mm-hmm. So that's how they actually arouse. But as they go down, they make sure that their body temperature is above set point. And so they don't... Um, uh, they're uh, below set point, so they don't they don't produce heat. They they don't produce any heat. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, Who knew? The, other, the other interesting point with these guys is that remember to hibernate, you got to get fat. Yeah, you need fat to be able to burn to produce the energy for these arousals and right. coming out of hibernation. Well, I asked the question: if they get fat, why don't they get diabetes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Get just, insulin such resistant. a short amount of time, right? Like, I mean, exactly. they're just packing it on in like a couple months. That's right. They're packing it on. It might be the type of fat as well. Exactly. And the type of oh. fat is also crucial that they're putting on. Yeah. And what myself and others discovered was that they do uh, prefer the essential fatty acids and they oh, put, okay. produce a lot of fat uh, and uh, feed extensively on plants that um, have fairly high levels uh, relatively high levels of uh, essential fatty acids, and the animals get fat 
And then once they're at a particular body mass and body weight, the animals look at the food in their cage and say, no, thank you. I'm good. I don't need to eat anymore. And they stop no. eating. They're self-regulating. And yeah. Self-regulating. And when they are at that point, that's when they should be diabetic. But they don't become diabetic because you know they why they're not eating. they're not eating seed oil. Number one, right. number two, they're not eating hydrogenated oil or That's partially right. hydrogenated oil or margarine. They're eating natural fat, which but, is good for humans as well. I'm not a nutritionist. Don't get me wrong, but that all that seed oil and hydrogenated oil are killing us. That's right, exactly, and and and, and that's why in the national parks. Uh, they tell people, please do not feed the animals because yes. marmots would love to have some Cheetos. They would love <laughs> sure. to have those, yeah. but, but uh, those are not good for them and they do right. not help them to hibernate. Exactly. They're not good for us either. Let's put it that way. We're not, right. you know, we're not that different. <laughs> we're, we're... That's right. But it's, it's nice that these guys, they get so fat, their insulin levels, their fatty levels, everything look just like an obese human. And wow. so we ask ourselves, why, why don't they become di have frank diabetes? And in fact, uh, it's because they stop eating. Now, why do they stop eating? That's the $64,000 question. We, I, I worked on that for a long time, and I would love to still dearly work on it now with all the new technologies that we have. But that clearly is one of the answers to our to a lot of human problems is if we could figure out what is the signal or molecules or whatever combination that turn off the appetite for these animals because they and and, and many other hibernators completely stop eating during that seven month period and um, and you I mean you can put uh, food I in can tell it. you what it isn't it isn't Ozempic that's for sure <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly so. So I have a question uh, that's not, maybe it's it's not technical Wait, no, first, enough for you. Hold on, are you a fan of Fat Bear Week? Have you heard of Fat Bear Week? No, I haven't heard of Fat Bear Oh, so it's basically, it's these bears that are tracked. I think, I don't know if it's Denali, some some national park. And, you know, they every year there's a Fat Bear Week contest and, you know, people will go online and vote who, which bear got the fattest, you know, before they go hybrid. It's, I think it's like in September and October, but it's just something kind of fun online. You can see these really fat bears. <laughs> yeah, they're eating salmon, natural uh, uh, fats and, and, and good fats. Yes, we fats. get it, natural fats. Yes, thank you. Right. So right. when they go get uh, Puxitani Phil, are they going down the hole and pulling him out? Or they, I mean, he, they may not – he doesn't cycle on Groundhog's Day. So no, Exactly. <laughs> that, that they go and they pull him out of his burrow, that they, their, their artificial burrow that they've – made for him and i always i always get um put on the news on groundhog day here in colorado nine nine news uh has done a number of stories on on yes. me because i i always um am a little bit uh chagrin about puxatani film yeah. because is it I, bad for them to disrupt his natural cycle he's sleeping and, i mean why are we yanking right. him they're, out of his hole exactly <laughs> they're, they're disrupting his hibernation cycle and Obviously, on February second, no marmot in his right mind would come above ground to see if it's going to be yes, <laughs> if it's going to be a long winter or a short winter. Um, 
you know, Margaret's here in Colorado are under 10 feet of snow uh, on February 2nd. And so they're not arousing to check out the, the weather. Now, Oxitani right. Phil, on the other hand, or woodchucks, and particularly because of, again, uh, the climate's been warming, they will occasionally come up above ground and 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 look and see what's going on because in the east, uh, end of February can be the start of spring. So right. yeah, um, but you can get a snowstorm in April too or May. Yeah, it's, that's exactly. True. You can yeah. still get April. That's right. And and the thing that also gets to me is that if you count the days um, from February second to March twenty first, which is the first day of spring. It's always six weeks. <laughs> always six True. weeks. Yes. So, yeah, you know, you know, it, uh, there's always going to be six more weeks of something, uh, you know, and uh, and uh, therefore, um, Pennsylvania is usually not uh, uh, the best uh, uh, predictor of of what the weather is going to be, and uh, as I said, the my my fellow marmots here, they would never come above ground. Uh, in February to to check out whether there's going to be six more weeks of winter or, or whatever. So well, who explains, started this craziness? No, that, was no, it? That it, explains it, why he always looks so pissed off. Because like he never yes. looks happy. He always looks like God damn it! These people in these suits and these guys pulling me out again. And, and, and you know that was a German folklore. That oh, that was oh, that's where it came from. Oh, that I thought explains it, it. Okay, German folklore. Yeah, and and it was because when the German uh, Germans came to the United States and they saw this uh, uh, rodent, well, they saw it was a rodent. They didn't know it was a rodent. They thought it was a badger, actually, uh-huh. uh, come, okay. ab- come above ground. Um, they thought this was a predictor of, of the weather. And, uh, and it, of course, has turned into a, a big uh, brouhaha with, uh, with the uh, uh, Puxatani Phil and everything. But they'd mistaken the groundhog for a badger coming above ground. And... Uh, <laughs> And having some mystical powers to be able to predict when uh, when winter was going to end or how hard winter was going to be. So, yeah, that's that's where that goes back back to. Well, they so, have a healthy diet. I'm reading here. Uh, where am I? I'm on a to z animals dot com. And it's telling me what to read the expert about from our website. Yeah. Marmot okay. diet. Right. Flowers, berries, leaves, grasshoppers, fruits, seeds, stems, oh, grass, fruits, bird eggs. That's right. Marmots in the wild have a very, very healthy diet. They definitely go after plants that are high in, in uh, essential fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Ah, they okay. love nuts and seeds, uh, et cetera. And uh, they will occasionally uh, get some protein. If, if uh, an animal gets hit along the, the roadside, they'll go and they'll, they'll actually gnaw on, on Johnny okay. that got hit by a car. Uh, <laughs> really? But, uh, yeah. Yeah, they, they will, but um, they in general um, are are herbivores, yes, and, uh, and and strict, pretty strict herbivores uh, at that point. And uh, they uh, they feed on plants that that are are high in uh, in the unsaturates, uh, which helps them to keep their body fat fluid uh, mm-hmm. on themselves as well. So they don't eat a lot of saturated fats. They uh, and the fats that they do make are are monounsaturated, 
uh, fats as well as polyunsaturated fats. Interesting. Uh, so it's, it says wait, something wait, here that the, no, my turn, my turn. How disruptive is? I mean, obviously it's disruptive to poor Puxitani Phil. Is he able to then go back into his slumbers, quote unquote, or is he just like you ruined it? I'm done. I now I'm awake. Like how does well, it? <laughs> it you know, it, it, depending upon how cold it is, yes. Puxatani could, could could go back into hibernation again if they left him alone and left him in a nice dark little burrow that he has, you know, for his uh, his hibernaculum. Uh, he could go back into hibernation. But my guess is that after he's been poked and prodded and brought, pulled out, that he probably uh, doesn't want to go back into hibernation again. He starts looking around for food. Whereas yeah. if I wake up one of our Colorado marmots, the yellow-bellied mm-hmm. marmots, uh, uh, in the middle of, of winter, in February, and prod him and wake him up, he'll say, you know, why why not somebody wake me up? I'm, right. I'm going back to sleep again. And, and, and they'll go right back down into hibernation. Oh, interesting. And, and they won't come out. Again, because of this circannual rhythm, sure. they won't they won't come back up until March or April. Oh wow, that's in, that is crazy. So yeah, so tell us about your your little your little stuffed friend over there. <laughs> well, as I said, this was baby, and uh, he uh, he went through a fair number of experiments, but he also uh, did a, a very nice job of educating uh, school kids about hibernation. And, and debunking some of the myths about sure. hibernation. Um, and it was a, a nice way to be able to, uh, and nice visual as well as tactile way, to show sure. them how cold an animal could get when they stop, uh, bre- you know, they reduce their heart rate, reduce their breathing, et cetera, and they're not producing any heat. They become as cold as a, as a rock, basically, right. uh, close to the environment. And uh, then they, they can produce heat internally. That's the thing. They can produce the heat internally to warm themselves up. Whereas a snake undergoes dormancy and has right. to wait until the environment temperature, the right. air temperature it warms out. up right, before they can start moving around again and, and get going again. So, Interesting. Um, but uh, he actually did uh, a number of insulin experiments with me as well of showing how his insulin levels changed through the course of the year and along with his fat mass changes uh, to uh, basically document that they became uh, insulin resistant and he had high insulin levels until he stopped eating uh, in the fall and then would start hibernating. And that's the other point that I should make is that all in our, all of our discussions so far, we've assumed that the animal is in a cold environment. In other words, right. either outside in the cold or in a cold room right. uh, if they're in captivity. Now, the question people will sometimes ask me was, well, what happens if the environment warms up or you keep them in a warm room? Do they still hibernate? Well, yes, they do try to hibernate, okay. but obviously they don't have a compressor in their body, so they right. can't go below ambient temperature. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, so so they-, they lower their body temperature to as low as they can go, but if you keep a marmot in a in a cold room that's at five degrees or zero, he hibernates great normally, deep right. long bouts of torpor, etc. If you raise the ambient temperature of the cold room up to about fifteen degrees, then he can only drop his body temperature down to about twenty degrees right. Celsius, and he cycles faster because his oh, metabolism sure. is higher. So he cycles faster. His torpor bouts are shorter, and they, then they do come out in February. 
because he's burned up all this fat. Right, right. Oh, he's burned sense. up all this fat because his metabolism has been higher because he's been at a higher ambient temperature. And so you can see if they come out sooner, the plants haven't evolved right. to come out sooner. There's nothing to eat. Okay. So this is the problem with global warming and, and sure. warming, particularly in, in areas like for the marmot, where they are assuming that they will be in sync with the timing of plants coming above ground and the food supply being available. Oh, wow. Now, yeah, that's something I didn't even think about. So was he kind of like, was baby kind of a pet? Would he, would he, was he like in your house running around or did he have a well, little marmot crate? No, no, he, uh, he had to stay in the lab. Okay. He did, he did stay in the lab, but, uh, but he would, um, he would, come and jump on you and sit on your shoulder. He was, he was a real, I mean, a pet like that. So he would sit on your shoulder and uh, he uh, uh, watched what you did and, and everything. And uh, so we, we let him roam around a little bit in the cold room. We gave him kind of free reign sure. and didn't actually uh, keep him in a, in a cage in his latter years. Right. Uh, when he got to be about eight, nine years old, uh, we didn't do experiments on him anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we gave him a lot of, of straw and grass and hay and let him just make his own burrow uh, in the cold room when it came to be uh, wintertime. And he would make his own burrow. And I have pictures of his burrow and everything that he made. And he would hi- hibernate uh, in the cold room, uh, whereas the other animals had to be in a cage because they were, right. were wild. But he, right. he could just be sort of out naturally doing what he wanted to do. And so oh, wow. it was, it was pretty nice to let him uh, do things naturally. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I mean, he died in hibernation, which is what oh. most marmots do. They eventually, they, uh, they get they they get old and they don't put on enough fat and sure. they eventually go to sleep and they don't wake up. And that's, oh, wow. that's that's what happens to a lot of, of uh, hibernating rodents um, is that they they eventually get old enough that they are not putting on the amount of fat that they need to uh, to survive. And the winter may also be a lot harder uh, sure. that particular year, and that is what uh, uh, gives you know, kills them basically. Interesting. So what's well, their that, lifespan in the wild? Then I gather he probably, baby probably lived a little bit longer than his cousins in the wild. That's right. Uh, the lifespan of marmots in the wild is usually between six and eight years. Okay. So, so he lived a lot longer. Now, having said that, there was one female marmot that I trapped uh, up in uh, Gothic, Colorado, up uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in the mountains here. Uh, and it had a air tag that I didn't recognize, and it had been air tagged by a colleague of mine, Ken Armitage. And when I gave him the air tag number, he said, "That's amazing. This animal is 22 years old." Wow! Whoa! And it was wow. a female that had a, a spectacular burrow. The burrow was really perfectly located so that predators couldn't get in. It was protected from wind and weather and everything. And she obviously had a, a long life, but that's the rarity. That was the rarity. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, that, I'm we, sure he was like, "You're messing with me. Like you didn't find this thing, or you found right, the ear right. tag like he, he, out yeah, somewhere." Yeah. 
Right. Wow. It, was, it was amazing when I trapped this this female and uh, she had lived for 22 years. Now, did she look old? Like, you know, as far as oh, Marmon, oh, yeah. she, she looked like she'd aged. <laughs> well, you know, uh, men and women turned gray and white. Right. You can see that this guy, he, if he, I don't know if I can get the lighting oh, right. Oh, cute. Yeah, he, his muzzle oh, he gets does have white. A little, yeah, a little right. sugar-faced. Yeah, yeah. His muzzle gets gets very white. So you can tell an old marmot because their muzzle gets quite gray and white uh, around the like, nose. Like this one. <laughs> you know, so what uh, preys on them? Too. And that's are they right, preyed upon in, during hibernation? Is I mean, I'm assuming that's probably motivation to like find a good den is like also so you don't get preyed upon. But what does eat them? Uh, coyotes, golden eagles, foxes will go after the babies. Weasels oh. will go after the babies. Martins will go after younger Martins. ones. But, yes, but uh, it's most mostly golden eagles and coyotes, and uh, and bears will dig them out uh, oh. during the winter. They find their burrows. We'll dig them out. So they have a fair number of of, uh, of predators. Yeah, so. sounds like it. And then, how many offspring do they typically have? Uh, usually a female marmot in her prime will Mm -hmm. maybe have between six and eight pups. We call them pups. Uh, Below ground, they're usually, uh, the gestation period is about 28 to 32 days, somewhere in that range. Uh, The pups stay below ground with the mom. Uh, They're usually born. The the matings can occur below ground most of the time. Sometimes they occur above ground. Matings are mostly below ground. Uh, pups are, are born sometime the first or second week of, of May, uh, and then they don't uh, they're they're born, but they don't come above ground until usually the second week or so of, of uh, June or or later. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, uh, of the six to eight that uh, are born, usually uh, a litter of four would be considered a, a big litter that would oh, come wow. above ground. So not all of them make it. Right. Um, but uh, but usually uh, three to four is the norm that would come above ground and start feeding. And, and uh, again, their task is to get up to one kilogram, 2.2 pounds. They've got to get up to one kilogram to be able to be able to survive the, the coming winter. And the pups, interestingly, that first year spend the year in the burrow in the winter uh, with their mom. So they oh, hibernate okay. with mom the first year. Interesting. Second year, they then uh, might hibernate with mom or might find their own burrow at that point in time. But the juveniles uh, usually stay with the den, with that mom, um, and on that that, uh, territory up until three years old. At three years old, uh, the mom and dad usually say, it's time to go make your way in the world and and kick them out. Go get your own den. That's right. right. Exactly. Oh, exactly. wow. That's a long well, time. Well, then it becomes, you know, a competition for matings and competition sure. for, uh, for food, et cetera. Well, this has been fascinating. And uh, who knew uh, about this hibernation? I, they're just the learning so much about the, the how that marmot body goes through the cycles. That's phenomenal. So and, did uh, I make 
that whole, that crazy scream? Like, I'm sure you've seen that video of that groundhog that's like, you know, it, kind of, it looks like they're in Colorado. They, she's standing on someone's porch and he's just screaming. Is that a, is that their noise that they make? Is that natural? Yeah, they make a very high-pitched scream. And that usually is to try to scare off predators. Exactly. I mean, it is scary because it's like, it just seems like you would not expect that type of a sound to come out of something like that. <laughs> yeah, they, that's right. They have a very high-pitched uh, squeal that they use to, uh, to scare off predators and to... Uh, you know, get people's attention and to, to warn other marmots in the area that there may be a predator. And they have different squeals and calls, as they're called, uh, for different predators, whether it be a golden eagle. Uh, there, there's a call for aerial predators. There's a call for a fox or a coyote that be uh, walking on the ground. They have a different call for that. So that way the marmots know where to look. Whether I'm, so I look up, so I look down right. or whatever. So. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So they're so are they solitary? So when they're not with their little babies, are they solitary throughout most of the time? Or well, the, the ones in Colorado and California, the yellow belly marmots, they are all uh, uh, <clears throat> social. They're they're social groups uh, surrounded by usually a dominant male and then a, a number of uh, usually could be one or two uh, females okay. uh, in the in the uh, on the territory and. Uh, the woodchuck, however, is solitary. Uh, it will the males will mate with females and then they leave, and then uh, they they tend to be solitary uh, at that point. In time. But uh, the yeah. alpine marmot in uh, in Europe uh, hibernates in groups of fifty. Yeah, my colleague uh, Walter Arnold has studied them uh, extensively, and uh, they will have a huge hibernaculum, and they might have up to fifty animals in one uh, in one den. And the they same don't overheat with all that with all them together. I mean, I guess since they're lowering their body temperature, but still, like yeah, but yeah, they uh, they put the babies in the middle of all mm-hmm. the of all the adults, and you know it's very cold there, and so they're hibernating and they keep each other warm, and uh, they're synchronized in terms of their arousals and. Uh, and their entrance of, into hibernation. Same is true for the uh, marmot up in the Arctic, uh, uh, Browry, the uh, marmot up in Alaska. It also hibernates uh, in big burrows, uh, in big burrows with a uh, large number of animals. So Interesting. They get, they get together. Oh, so wow. all the different species have adopted uh, the a different kind of social behavior and, sure. and physiology depending upon the environment that they're in. Sure. Sure. Uh, we may have to have you back like for Darwin's round two almost. because uh, who knew marmots were so fascinating? And now <laughs> I understand why you went into marmots because uh, there's still a lot to be uh, gleaned from this uh, wonderful animal. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you. Has very, the clothing very company much. sponsored you yet? Well, Marmot did sponsor me. <laughs> they did sponsor me for about two years. And um, I wish I, well, I, I, I don't have it on me. But next, next time, if I if we do this again, I'll wear Absolutely. my Marmot clothing. I've yes, got Marmot please. clothing, Marmot tents, all kinds Excellent. of Marmot paraphernalia. Good. Because they did, they did Absolutely. sponsor me for about two years when I was a graduate student. And uh, I'm getting awesome. a professor. Yeah. Excellent. That is awesome. That was my dad. That well, was a question I had. Thank you very, very much for your yes, time. Yes, thank you so much, it Dr. Reed. very we informative, have to have very fascinating on. how nature uh, created this uh, adaptation of, of for, for, for marmots. Uh, we, we, and we then we to... really 
quick because they get, I mean, they basically get on the verge of like being pre, like they're pre-diabetic essentially. That doesn't damage their kidneys or pancreas. They have no, wow. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's really something that, you know, we should be studying. And you remember, they use the woodchuck to deter, to uh, understand uh, hepatitis and hepatitis C. Oh, did they C. really? Yeah. How does, the, okay, explain that wood, one to us really quick. That's a whole other interesting story. But the woodchucks that were uh, housed at Cornell, a guy named Con Cannon, um, and, uh, and folks down at, at Penn in Pennsylvania, um, they use woodchucks to uh, work out uh, hepatitis C. And, wow. uh and why uh, uh, these animals d- didn't get hepatitis, et cetera. So. That's insane. Oh, yeah, we'll have to have you come back yeah, on and tell us. That's part two. That's the teaser. That's the teaser. That's the teaser. Because I, I would need to, I want to yeah, know more I, I about that. I want to find out about that. That's a lot of A lot of medical uh, implications here. A lot of yeah. things that we could learn. Oh, um, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, especially like reversing prediabetes, like, because unfortunately it still can, you still can have damage to your organs, regardless if you get out of that range or not. It's, there's still some lingering effects, but this, thank you so much for your well, time. Dr. You, Gray. Professor. We're going to have to definitely have you time. come back for this yes. uh, hepatitis and woodchuck thing. I'm right. have that highlighted right absolutely. now. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> yes. All thank right. you so much. Thanks. And as always, well, we, we both say our goodbyes. And, yes, uh, bye to baby. To- <laughs> thank you guys. All right. Thank All you right. again. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.